Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are over 100,000 titles for you to choose from in every genre, and you can play them on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And listen to this deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get 1Q84, the new novel by Haruki Murakami, or How About the Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eugenides. Or what about A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan? Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. It's a terrific deal, available now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. My name is Brad Listy. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's good to have you here. Today's guest is John Warner. He is the author of four books, and he's the editor of McSweeney's Internet Tendency. So if you've ever wondered who it is behind that uh, particular curtain, you're about to find out. Uh, John has a new novel out from Soho Press. It is called The Funny Man, and it's about a comedian who becomes famous for shoving his entire fist in his mouth during his live shows. Uh, it's obviously about other things too, but uh, to find out what those other things are, you're going to have to read the novel. John and I are going to be talking in just a bit. Uh, before I get there, though, I thought it would be interesting to contemplate humor, and uh, you know that seems to be fitting. What makes something funny? What makes a man funny? What makes a woman funny? Uh, or what makes a writer funny, for that matter? And uh, I should say here, uh, you know, that I rarely laugh while reading. And it's one of my litmus tests for a book is whether or not it makes me laugh aloud. And, uh, you know, it, it almost never happens. That's the truth. But if it does, I tend to be a huge fan of the writer in the book. And, uh, you know, to, to kind of further clarify, you know, I will laugh silently. That happens a lot. But to laugh aloud, you know, to get that out of me when I'm reading a book is really difficult. And, you know, to even, you know, to drill down even further... When I say that I laugh aloud, it's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I'm uh, roaring with laughter. 
It's not like I guffaw. Uh, you know, I mostly just make a noise. Like I might, I might actually say ha. But, but even that, any kind of noise, any kind of laughter-like noise, if you can elicit that from me with a book, that's huge. So, you know, what is it? What is comedy? Uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure. Is it, is it tragedy plus time? Uh, is it the truth told faster and with more gravity? Does it always have to come from pain? Does it always have to come from uh, some kind of fear? You know, those kinds of things. Not entirely sure, but I do know that I almost cannot tolerate uh, any kind of creative work, whether it's a movie uh, or a book or whatever, unless it has some kind of humor in it. You know, my favorite stuff always has at least an element of humor in it, it you know, and when I'm creating myself, whether I'm doing this podcast or I'm writing, uh, I always try for at least a little bit of that. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. I, you know, I guess I need the release or I, I just can't handle the world otherwise. And I think if I look back at my life, you know, I can trace this back to my childhood. It's not like this is a new development. This has been how, you know, this has been, uh, my approach since I was a kid. And, you know, I think that my favorite kind of humor, uh, I'm not talking about slapstick necessarily. Uh, my favorite kind of humor tends to be dark. It tends to be a combination of dark and light. And I think that's why I like dark humor so much is that I think it addresses real issues. It doesn't shy away from them. Uh, from them or try to, you know, medicate them or, or you know what I'm saying? It just, it, it deals with them head on and it kind of transcends them, but it deals with them. And so I also think that dark humor, uh, tends to be as far as my eyes can tell the most accurate reflection of life as it really is, because life to me is, you know, uh, frightening and awful and violent and disgusting and painful and difficult and beautiful and hilarious and miraculous and you know usually all at the same time or often all at the same time uh i don't know if i said that very well but basically what i'm saying is that it's a combination it's not black and white it's a mix and uh i think that dark humor reflects that well so you know when i was a kid what was i like was i some sort of prodigiously funny kid uh not at all you know at least not in a performative sense i was never some sort of like physical performer uh, I've always been more verbal, but I do remember being really into joke books, and I remember being obsessed with comedians. I remember George Carlin specials on HBO when I was in elementary school, the seven words you can't say on TV, uh, that sort of thing. I remember having Sam Kinison albums, actually having them uh, on cassette tape. Uh, there's one called Have You Seen Me Lately that I can actually remember the cover for. And I can actually remember you know, listening to it in my room as a kid in junior high and standing in front of my mirror and actually practicing the Sam Kinison scream, like trying to imitate it. And like my mom is out in the hallway wondering what I'm doing. So uh, what's interesting too is that my wife is kind of the same way. Uh, she's a really funny woman. And, uh, you know, I guess I need, uh, need to have someone around me that can really make me laugh. And she also had a similar childhood. We were, you know, we were both uh, raised in the Midwest, she in Minnesota and me in uh, Wisconsin and then Indiana. And uh, we both were like fixated on comedians as kids. And uh, I don't know, I just, it strikes me as interesting. And just to give you a bit of an idea about her sense of humor, uh, I remember a while back, we went out to the theater one night, which, you know, I don't want to make it sound like this is something we do often. This was an unusual occurrence. Somebody gave us some tickets and uh, we went down to like the Amundsen Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, we were sitting there at this outdoor bar before the show. It was like a bar, restaurant, outdoor situation 
and we're sitting there and there's music playing like lightly in the distance. There's like a, there's some smooth jazz happening. There's a quartet and, uh, you know, the place has a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people there and we're sitting up at the bar on these bar stools and there's like, you know, four or five people at the bar with us. There's like another couple and then a couple of other people and everybody's having food and drinking wine. And all of a sudden, uh, this guy, this kind of random guy goes jogging past the restaurant. And, you know, it was, it was almost like he actually jogged through the restaurant because it was an outdoor restaurant and he jogged right past us. And, uh, he was sort of chubby and he's wearing a wife beater and it was just, it was just really out of place. It was, it just looked absurd. And, uh, you know, for one, for one thing, jogging in general to me always looks absurd. It always, you know, almost always looks really painful. And, uh, you know, I've often argued that, uh, there's a very small percentage of the human population that looks good while jogging, much like there's a very small percentage of the human population that looks good naked in sunlight. That's another debate I've had. So anyway, here comes this guy. We're sitting there at this bar and uh, he's jogging and he's got a headlamp on. It's dark out and he's wearing a headlamp, which makes him look doubly absurd. And we're sitting there when this happens, you know, all of us at the bar and everybody sort of pauses, like the, the bartender pauses, we pause, everybody sort of pauses and watches this. And then with like perfect uh, timing, my wife says, that's my gynecologist. And it got this huge laugh, and I was really proud of her. I was really impressed with it. Uh, you know, she's just really funny, and I was, it was, I was proud of the fact that her mind could make those connections that quickly. And, uh, you know, I don't know. That's kind of her sense of humor. And I should also add that she's good at making fun of me, which is necessary, because, uh, you know, I can be an idiot, and I, I'll get all overtired uh, or worked up about something, and I will, uh, I will experience confusion. And so uh, to give you an example, the other night, I think it's about like 1 a.m., and I'm, I'm at the end of a long work day and a long work night, and I'm exhausted, and I go back into the bedroom, and it's dark, and my wife is sleeping, and I'm looking for the iPad so that I can read and put myself to sleep, which is kind of the ritual at this point where, you know, the iPad's great because you don't, you don't need a light. It has its own light. I don't have to turn on the bedside lamp to read a book, uh, you know, and I, I won't wake her up. So... I'm looking for the iPad, but I can't find the iPad and I'm exhausted and it's kind of cold and all I want to do is get in bed. So I start looking for it and I say, God damn it. And, uh, you know, I kind of said it in a half whisper. I was like, God damn it. Like that. And uh, my wife wakes up and she's like, what? And I'm like, you know, I'm like, where's the goddamn thing? I, you know, I was like, I can't find the goddamn thing. And my wife's like, what? And I'm like the goddamn thing, the iPad. And I can't find the goddamn thing. And so, you know, I keep searching and I'm, I'm kind of getting increasingly worked up about it. And then my wife finally just like gets up and it's not, I mean, like literally like in less than like seven seconds, she finds the iPad, she tosses it onto the bed, gets back in bed and goes back to sleep. And I feel sort of stupid. I feel a little sheepish, but, uh, you know, I get into bed, I kind of read myself to sleep with the iPad. And then the next morning I get up early, I go to the gym or whatever I do. And I come home and I'm like, hey, honey. And she's like, where's the goddamn thing? And, uh, you know, all week long, that's all I've been hearing. Where's the goddamn thing? I can't find the goddamn thing. And it's now gotten to the point uh, where that's actually what we call the iPad. It's not even the iPad anymore. It is now the goddamn thing. And I couldn't find it anywhere. And it was late and I was overtired and uh, it was making me crazy. 
So I guess it makes me crazy when I can't find the goddamn thing. And uh, I don't know. Does that make you crazy? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, okay, so you're in South Carolina, and you've written books of humor, and then now you've written The Funny Man, which is your first novel. Correct. Your first foray into fiction. Uh, first foray into full-length fiction. I've, I've written and published short stories all along. Um, I did the kind of traditional MFA program, go off and write your short stories and uh, try in vain to get them published in places where you can get noticed. So I have an entire hard drive full of those, and some of those managed to make their way into the world over the years. But now, and you know, typically what you write tends to be humorous? Yeah, I mean, the... The coming out of my MFA program where I hadn't had a lot of success, I just kind of happened into writing short, humorous things. And, you know, we're talking late 90s, um, kind of Internet 1.0, where the McSweeney's website was starting and then this website, Modern Humorist, it's no longer with us, was getting going. And there was just kind of a demand for these, you know, short, semi-intelligent humor pieces and uh, for whatever reason I had a facility for that kind of stuff so it uh, you know it became sort of a uh, this is what people want to see from me so I'll write that well and it's but it seems to play well on the internet too maybe I mean just the length of it and then the fact that it's funny and it's uh, you know quickly digestible or consumable is that yeah for sure I mean that that's kind of the whole thing that's always that's always been McSweeney's thing with you know it's under a thousand words uh the headline basically tells you what the piece is going to be and if it's something that you're interested in you get in you get out um they're pretty easy to do once you you hit a premise that that works and right so you know some of it was my my situation at the time I had a a real world desk job in corporate america and and um what was that job I was a marketing research consultant. Oh God! Uh, just sounds yeah. just sounds scary. <laughs> I didn't even know marketing research was such a thing until I started working there. Yeah. And then uh, it turned out I had a certain facility for it, um, basically because people buying things is not all that different from any other kind of story. There's a, a narrative to it, and then you explain that to your clients, and that helps them understand how to sell more shit to. To people, uh, it's 
it's not the most interesting job in the world, but I was grateful for it at the time. It got me out of my parents' basement. Yeah, that was right. sure. Yeah, where I moved back after graduate school at age 27. <laughs> I did that too. I did. I lived with my parents for a year when I was like 24. <laughs> yeah, that was, that there's was nothing. There's, there's nothing worse. And in in my case, my parents had downsized between the time I had I had uh, finished college and uh, and then finished graduate school. So they no longer had like space for me where they lived. So it was it was literally in the basement, you know, single mattress set up. Uh, naked light bulb dangling over my head. And, <laughs> it's like prison. Right. Totally. I, I had an MFA in creative writing and a master's in English literature, and I was completely unemployable. And I was like, what What have I done to myself? But fortunately, this uh, at least temporary career came through. So, okay. So where did you get your MFA? I went to McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Although if you're from Lake Charles, you call it McNeese, but... Uh, Okay. I'm from, I'm from the Midwest, so I say McNeese. Okay, okay. So you're from the Midwest, but you wound up at McNeese State. My, my okay, I, I grew up in the Midwest, but my parents and my extended family is from Louisiana. Okay. So I'm familiar with McNeese. And right. Uh, where in the Midwest are you from? Uh, Chicago area. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and then uh, went to school downstate, University of Illinois. Okay. And then lived in lived in Chicago for. I guess nine years total, different stretches after college and grad school and that kind of thing. Okay, and then went to McNeese, got your MFA. Like, what what drew you there? Did you did you get some sort of uh, fellowship, or was there a, a teacher there that you liked, or what was the? Yeah, uh, it's sort of a combination of those things. At the time, the um, director of the fiction program was Robert Olin Butler, uh-huh. uh, and this was just after he had won the Pulitzer Prize for his story collection, A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain, which. I had read um, pretty much when it came out, and I, I can't remember how it came across my radar, but I was just kind of blown away by it. And um, I was looking, I'd been working after college for a couple of years, thinking about an MFA program because um, I decided I was not going to go to law school, which was my other possibility. Uh, and a, an undergraduate professor of mine said to take a look at McNeese State, where, where Bob Butler was. Um, applied, got in, went down. The place is totally funky, as you know, if, you, if you're familiar with southwest Louisiana. Um, really good other students that I met there um, when I was visiting. Uh, everybody got funding, so uh, you're not going to go broke while you're there. Low cost of living. Um, it just felt like the right place for me to be. Uh, also a three-year program. That was definitely definitely a help. To oh, have, that's nice. have that much time. And... Uh, the, and I, I believe they still do this. If you stay three years and take two extra courses, they throw in a master's in English literature as like an extra. Oh my, okay, I was going to say you have two master's degrees. Right, but uh, you, you earn them simultaneously while you're in the program. It means taking you know more classes than you would at a traditional MFA program. You're always taking at least nine hours, and, and a couple times you have to take 12, but um, it really is it's pretty worth it. Um, to get that extra credential, at least it's helped me. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then, what about uh, you know, what about living in Lake Charles? Lake Charles is a funky place. I mean, Lake Charles is a is a failed industrial city. I mean, it's got a uh, it, especially at the time, it almost had a post apocalyptic feel to it, like an I am legend thing when you went downtown. <laughs> which um, is which is good for you know a young writer. You need a little bit. Yeah. Of that. 
It's like Gary, yeah, it's I, like Gary, Indiana, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a lot like Gary, Indiana, as a matter of fact, because, uh, you know, it got really big. I think it got up to like 150,000 people during the oil boom of the 80s. By the time I was there, it was down to about 70,000 people. So all this infrastructure that had been built was now empty. Um, and the economy was basically there were a couple of riverboat casinos, and then there were um, – you know, th- you know things oil aren't going. Refiners. You know things aren't going well when the riverboat casinos show up. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, that, I mean that really is sort of the the last desperate move um, of of a failing economy. I was just I was just back home in Chicago recently, and I noticed uh, um, they're putting in casinos, new casinos everywhere um, uh, in Chicago, and they're even talking about machines. Uh, like at where, the airport. Where in Chicago? Where are these casinos? Well, it's there's one near Arlington Park Racetrack, uh-huh. um, which actually is quite near. You know, from O'Hare, you could you can get there in like 20 minutes. Um, and now they do. They want to try to put slot machines. Somebody wants to put slot machines in the O'Hare terminals. Oh my God. Uh, so they could be everywhere. Uh, in in Lake Charles, so the uh, the other thing you know you're in trouble is where there's uh, video poker machines in all the bars. Yeah, which which was true in Lake Charles. Um, I still there's this one place we would go uh, called Billy Wayne's that was uh, allegedly owned by the illegitimate son of John Wayne. <laughs> this guy, That's a good this guy story. looked he he was sort of a dead ringer, so it was it was believable. Uh, and their video poker machine was so old and decrepit. Uh, when you got the receipt, you get your if you won, you had a receipt that was printed out, and then you had to take it to the bar to cash in. It wouldn't. It had no ink anymore, but it would make an imprint on the paper. So you would take it to the bar, and then with a pencil, you would very very lightly shade in your winnings, and they would pay you. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, but the thing about Louisiana, I mean, what you're describing it, it doesn't, none of this surprises me at all, but I've always loved Louisiana for the fact that it has like an actual culture. Like, yeah. There, there, you must've met so many characters during your time. Oh, I mean, the, the, the place is stuffed with characters and that's, I mean, that's another big reason why I wanted to go there for graduate school is growing up in the Chicago suburbs and basically my upbringing was if you've seen any of the John Hughes movies, like Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, those are all filmed in my hometown. What was that, Glen, Glen Ellen, or Glen uh, Co- uh, it's Northbrook? But the the high school is Glenbrook North. And okay. He was always uh, and John Hughes went to high school there, uh-huh. um, so it was his hometown. Uh, so I was definitely looking for for something odder and funkier, and um, yeah, Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana, the whole region. Um, delivers and in, in fact a, uh, a friend of mine from the program, my roommate, my first year, we used to just go get in his car and drive, <laughs> and and just wind up with funky stuff um, uh, and see what's going on. You know, you go to like a tent revival where they're doing the snake charming and the speaking in tongues. And um, you went to you went to one of those. Oh uh, yeah, I mean that's sort of another uh, uh, only in Louisiana story. But uh, there, one day on my way to school. I got a speeding ticket, and I was going uh, 10 over in a school zone. Uh, I was pulled over by a bike cop. He jumped out of the bushes and, like, flagged me down. I almost ran him over because I couldn't believe a cop would just be on foot standing in the middle of the road. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, He was on a bicycle? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was thinking motorcycle. Yeah. He was on a no, 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 bicycle. Yeah, and like one guy was at one end clocking, would radio down to the other guy who would jump out of the bushes and tell you to tell you to stop. <laughs> so uh, I, I I go to the the hearing or the trial or whatever it is, and I find out that the uh, fine is going to be something like four hundred and fifty dollars which at the time was, you know, like 10% of my, my assistantship. So I just, I was like, I'll forget it. I'll take, I'll take the probation, which was being offered. And the probation that was being offered was that you had to go to church once a week for a year. God, only in Louisiana. I mean, right, (laughs) right. To you and me, that sounds unconstitutional, but this was just like the way things are done. And there were hundreds of us who were taking that deal on that day, but uh, I I was not a churchgoer. I mean, I, I sort of at my my parents' behest, I got confirmed at age fourteen. I think I don't even remember. I think I was a Presbyterian, and then I didn't go back. Um, so I took it as an opportunity to go to as many different churches as possible over that next year or so. Um, I went to all of them. I went to the Pentecostals. I went to uh, several different Baptist churches, never the same Baptist church, because you got your first, you got your second, you got your re- Reformed. Um, I went to Christian Scientists. Um, I went to Temple. Uh, I went to some tent revivals and that kind of stuff. So uh, it was it was a really interesting experience. In the end, it was kind of cool. I wish I'd had the wherewithal to take notes and and write a book about it or something. But at the time, I was just kind of, it's this thing that I got to get up and do on, on Sunday mornings. So wait, now, would the, uh, would, then you'd have to get like the priest to sign a little piece of paper for you? Yes, yeah, some, <laughs> some church official. You, you could be a deacon or something like that. But uh, yeah, and they, you know, it, it wasn't hard because the second I would sit down, everybody would know that I wasn't a member of the church because they know who everybody in their church is. So... Um, well before the service was over, somebody would have have sidled up next to me and, and struck up a conversation and said welcome and this kind of stuff because they're always looking for for more members. Um, and I had some really really fun times. I mean, even at the at the Christian Scientist um, service, which I don't know how familiar you are with Christian Scientists, but um, it's all lay person officiated. So it's just like they they have the book written by. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who who decided here's what we're going to do each service, and then they just read from that day's stuff and and kind of do it for themselves. And when I went to, there were only three members um, with their children, and uh, I stayed afterwards. And they told me about all the times they'd you know been healed by prayer and and uh, you know like uh, one of them she had a piano recital and fell off her bike and and hurt her arm and, and then was fine to go to the recital. And they're super nice and welcoming and interesting and um, interested in me. So I can't speak enough of going to 50 different churches. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it's the kind of thing I've talked about, like, you know, in just sort of an offhand way, like that's something I should do. Or I think about my daughter and it's like, I have no, I'm not affiliated. You know, I don't consider myself affiliated, but I have like had the thought that maybe, a good thing to do would be to, you know, when she gets a little older, just take her to different churches right. just to kind of expose her to that. Yeah, see what sticks, what, what, what works for her. Yeah. It, it, uh, it gave me, you know, at, at times it gave me a much um, better feel about religion, better feelings about religion than I, I would have had previously. Other times it was horrifying. Yeah. Uh, you'd go into some churches. I still remember a sermon uh, 
where it was basically a conspiracy theory type end of the world thing um, that involved uh, barcodes, um, Bill Clinton and Boutros Boutros Ghali, <laughs> the uh, Secretary General of the UN at that time. Um, and I, I remember, you know, I was like looking around, like I was looking for somebody to kind of catch her eye and be like, can you believe this shit? <laughs> and uh, no, they were all nodding like, yeah. Ugh. That's happening. So there, you know, there were times where all the horrible stereotypes that you hear about some of these places are borne out. But but the, that's actually you know more rare than being surprised. You know, than having having your expectations upended as far as those things go. Well, but you know, I've always found that in the South, I mean, it's religion is such a part of the social fabric. I mean, not only. Oh, yeah. Not only is it uh, you know the, the sp- a spiritual thing or whatever, but I mean I just feel like it's really part of how uh, you know the communities are built there and how they function, and you know it's a social thing. You go to church on Sunday and see your friends, and I guess it's the same in other parts of the country, but it just it feels so uh, so deeply rooted in the South. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's something we've my wife and I have struggled with here in South Carolina. We've lived here for. Uh, over six years, and unless and until you belong to a church, it's it's even hard to make friends um, because that's what everybody else is doing, and that's what you know their social lives revolve around and their and their um, activities and that kind of thing. Um, and that's even we we were living in Greenville, now we live in Charleston. One of the reasons we decided to move to Charleston was because we thought we could find more things to do, um, more groups to to try to hook up with outside of church. Not that I have objections to people who go to church, but it's just, it's not quite my thing. So, uh, and, and it's not really anybody's excluding us. Um, it's just how they grew up. You know, the church is really important. Um, and there's even plenty of people I meet here who are no longer even particularly um, religious, I would say, have le- have a really strong faith, but still, you know, they go to church every Sunday because that's like, that part's it's like, their, it's like their club, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, but, okay, but you say that people don't judge you, you know, or you don't feel judged. But when you're meeting people, do they ask you what church you belong to? Is that a common question? Yeah, that, that'll happen. Or um, if, they, if they know you're new, they'll invite you to church. Uh, our next-door neighbor, a really lovely woman uh, um, in Greenville, you know, would, would uh, every so often just ask if we didn't want to go. Uh, and this kind of stuff, and never pushy and never never judgmental, um, but was interested in in sort of getting us involved that way. Um, you know, I think some of that is she came from an evangelical church where part of her mission is to is to win converts. But uh, you know, it's it's a common thing. It's like in in South Carolina, particularly in Charleston, you know, they ask if you're a Clemson or a, or a University of South Carolina fan. It's it's like one of the markers of who you are um, <laughs> and what you're about. Uh, so to to just and it is it's awkward when you say I don't. Um, you you do occasionally get looked at funny um, for a second, but everybody's. I mean, that's part of the South too. Is everybody's going to be nice and, and friendly to you. So if you're being judged, often you don't know it. Yeah, it's with a smile. It's with a smile yeah. and like oh, yeah. a glass of like lemonade or something. Exactly. I mean, the, the phrase uh, uh, you hear, hear a lot is, is uh, bless your heart or bless her heart. You know, <laughs> like, like, bless her heart, she tries hard, but she's really just dumb. You know? <laughs> it, it, so anytime you hear bless her heart, you know, some, the knives are out and it's about to get, 
plunged in. That's so. Uh, I was thinking about that the other day. That phrase, like people say that, and then they basically say something really cutting. You know? it's, yeah, the word whatever whatever is after "bless your heart" is the worst possible thing they could say. <laughs> Um, so I guess I should ask you, are you a Clemson guy or are you South Carolina? Do you have a feeling there? I mean, have you picked Well, I, I worked at Clemson for six years when okay. we were in Greenville. But to be honest, I, I don't feel any particular particular loyalty to the place or the or the football team or anything like that. I guess all things all things being equal, I, I would like to see them win, but um I don't feel that like gut level excitement that I do for the teams I really do root for. Okay. So who do you root for? Okay. I, I, I need to discuss this. I need to, <laughs> I have, I have issues here because I have almost zero affil- allegiance or you know, like genuine emotion for, uh, my college teams. I couldn't care less. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm a pro football fan, which goes right. deep into my childhood. I think that we're, that's where that stuff takes root, but I think I have like a pretty, uh, I don't know what the, what the, what's the word for it, but maybe brutal, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan, like I'm a green Bay Packers fan. Cause I grew up in Milwaukee. Uh, right. and that's where I was born and that's where I first started, you know, cheering for a team or whatever. And I love the Packers, especially since they're good. Uh, <laughs> right. And maybe only because they're good. Like as a pro, if, if professional athletes are getting paid millions and millions of dollars, uh, as a fan, I sort of expect them to go out and perform well for me. <laughs> right. And if the team sucks, I'm not watching. I don't care. I don't want to watch my team get beat. I want to watch my team win. That's it. Right, right. I mean, no, I, 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 I'm sort of the same way. I mean, when I was growing up, I was like crazy for sports, sports period. Like, uh, you know, if you remember like the early days of ESPN when it first went on, like 79, 80, and they'd have like Australian rules football and Irish hurling on there and all these sports that, that I didn't even understand. I'd watch that stuff just cause I love sports. And, um, you know, I grew up in Chicago, so I loved all the Chicago teams, uh, Cubs fan, not the white Sox, hate the white Sox, um, bears, um, the bulls, you know, with Jordan there, um, hockey's probably my favorite sport. So I'm a big Blackhawks fan. Um, you know, went to school at the University of Illinois where our football team is traditionally not good. So I'm not that into the football team just because my expectations are low. Um, but basketball, uh, the University of Illinois basketball team, I root for pretty strongly. Um, part of it was their, one of their original heydays while I was in, while I was in college. Um, and, you know, and then they went to the national championship game not too long ago. So much more pro oriented than college for me at this point. And even my degree of interest in sports is, is waning, um, year by year. Uh, like I'll watch all the Blackhawks games I can, um, just because I, I like hockey and and still just enjoy watching hockey. Um, and I want them to do well, but, uh, as, as sacrilegious as it sounds, there's, you know, the bears played on Monday night this, this last week. And, uh, I went to bed at halftime. I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't care enough to stay up and watch it. So wow, they played. They actually pulled it out too. They won. They did. Yeah. No. And they were. They were doing pretty well. And they had a good season last year. And I, I want to see them win. But there was a time where, uh, I mean, this was in the seventies, like seventy-seven, seventy-eight, where they had to win the last game to get in the playoffs. And I remember, you know, my my 
eight or nine year old self, I thought I was having like a little kid heart attack <laughs> watching the game because it mattered so much to me. Right. Like, oh, this this is the most important thing in the world. Uh, you know, this was like when Walter Payton was on the team, and I just, I mean, I just loved it. And now I find it just much more fleeting. Like I'll enjoy watching sports, but it doesn't matter to me. Okay, so and then tell me, tell me if, if I'm the only one here on this side of it as well. Is I was just having a conversation about music, and in particular, like how much uh, music meant, like in the age, you know, when between the ages of like say 16 and 24, mm-hmm. going right. to see, going to see concerts, what those experiences were like, like how important music and the live music experience felt, and you know, I don't want to sound um, like, you know, like I have like a dead soul, but it's not, the <laughs> sa- it's not the same anymore. You know, <laughs> like, no, no, your soul is dead. Yeah, so, right. uh, no, I actually, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, some of that is I had the same experience that m- my high school years were spent basically in one of my friend's basements with my other friends listening to music. Um, you know, like classic rock, like Beatles and Hendrix and Zeppelin and stuff. But then we're into REM and the replacements and and that kind of music. And we were just obsessed with it, just completely, completely, completely into it. And we all started playing instruments and this kind of stuff. And then later on, when I lived in Chicago, one of the reasons why I lived in the neighborhood I lived in was because uh, – this club, Cabaret Metro, which is now just Metro, was right around the corner, and you could go see amazing live music any night of the week. You what know, what neighborhood was that in? That was right by Wrigley Field. They call it Lakeview. Okay. Um, but you could call it Wrigleyville, too. Um, and we would, we would just go all the time. I mean, it was it was a steady part of, of my diet, um, and you'd see amazing, incredible shows. And now, <laughs> sort of the same way, like... Like, I'll go to maybe two or three shows a year um, at best, and sometimes I'm checking my watch during them, you know, yeah. where it just seems like this is the thing. It's, it's, it just doesn't quite get me the same way. I mean, there, there's exceptions. There's there's times where, where maybe I can feel transported by the live music experience. I went to a Wilco show a couple of years ago that, that sort of reached elevation, but... Uh, it's just not the same thing, and I, I don't know if it's it's a function of kind of the being a naive youth where you think these songs maybe mean more than they they do, or that sense like I'm alone and somehow this music is speaking to me. And you know, as I get older, I realize, yeah, we're alone, but it's not that big a deal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and, and you know, even now, like you know, if I'll go to, I'll sometimes go to a show and I'll, I'll really enjoy it, and it'll it'll you know, it'll get to me and I'll find myself feeling sort of how I used to feel. But at the same time, uh, it, it, it almost seems like an exercise in nostalgia rather than like yeah. an immediate authentic experience. Like part yeah. of what's getting to me is that it's reminding me how I used to feel when I was like 19 at one of these shows. Right. It's an echo. It's not the, it's not the original sound. And I think that's, I think that's totally true. And even, even me, my, my personality sort of runs anti-nostalgia. Um, me too. I'm, I'm wary of nostalgia. Like I, I had this conversation recently with, with um, my wife and a couple of her friends where they were talking about going to their high school reunion. And I said, why would anybody go to their high school reunion? <laughs> I just what had is- that conversation like two days ago, and I said the right. same exact thing. I said the only one that I would want to go to even remotely is like the 50th or 60th when – 
no one's right. no one's comparing. Everyone's just kind of glad to be like still alive, and and you know that's about it. And you're all yeah. And even I'm thinking with Facebook, that's probably not even going to be necessary because you'll you'll know yeah. who's who's still around. And and I, now this is a pre- I think they're talking about their twentieth, um, which is a long time. But it's like you know the people that I want to talk to from high school, I still talk to. Yeah, they're still too. my friends. Yeah. I don't I don't really give a shit what anybody else is up to beyond a kind of fleeting oh isn't that interesting who got rich and you know who who's doing this and who's doing that but um it's more like the event like that we're going to go revel in this feeling of this time and place um and kind of gin up this excitement for something that probably didn't even happen at the time like oh the best years of our lives and (laughs) i just think that's all such bullshit (laughs) it it just makes me when i think of it when i think of going to like a 15th or 20th high school reunion it makes me feel fear like it just or just like discomfort you know just the idea of it i I have right there's no attraction to the idea right now, I, I do, I should say, I occasionally do have experiences like this almost by accident, and I, I often can enjoy myself. Um, like for, you know, with the book coming out, I've I've done some readings, and I went back to my undergraduate alma mater, University of Illinois, um, and did a reading there and hung out with the professor I had when I was in college, and and it was kind of fun to read in front of students who are a lot like I was when, you know, I was there. Um, and I went back to McNeese and, and did a reading there, and uh, a bunch of people that I went to grad school with are now on faculty there. And, and so, did you read at Billy was, Wayne's, or where were you reading? No, no, they had a they had a nice sort of auditorium on campus. Oh, okay. Uh, for me, yeah, no, they gave me the uh, they gave me the full treatment at, at McNeese, uh, which was nice. They they treated me like a, a a real somebody, not just somebody who used to go to school there. Um, but it was it was cool to see those people and catch up with them and that kind of thing. Um, but the the pleasure probably wasn't about nostalgia. It was more about you know reconnecting with people who who were meaningful to me at some point. So so maybe there's some degree of that. But it's I, I just have no I have very low tolerance for looking back and saying this was better or this is the best and this kind of thing. Like I just don't think there's any, there's no percentage in that, in uh, in wallowing and that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. I mean, do and do you feel that it applies also to uh, stuff? Like, are you nostalgic about stuff? Like, no, no, <laughs> me neither. No. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, you know, books. Like, I, I'm like any writer. I've got a ton of books. Um, but even you know, just now that we 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 did this big move and we've lived in the house in in Greenville for six years. Um, and you know how you can acquire a lot of stuff when you're in one place for a long time. And I must have gotten rid of two or three hundred books, just right. gave them away. Yeah, um, I did. I did that. I talked about that actually in, a, in an episode uh, of this show where I, I purged. I just I, I got it in my head that they needed to be recirculated. Like, what are they doing sitting on my shelf? Like, never to yeah. be read again. So I just gave them away. You know. Yeah, I, uh, I, I over the course of six months, I'd bring ten, fifteen. Uh, to my office on campus at Clemson. I'd put them outside my door and I'd say free books and then they would disappear by the end of the day and I'd feel a hell of a lot better than when they were sitting on my shelf. Yeah. Uh, and and even now, you know, we've moved and we're kind of in a temporary spot. We, we're renting before we buy. And I've only taken about six books out, um, you know, where I used to be surrounded by them and I'm not missing it. 
I'm not missing that that much. Um, you know, there's, there's occasions where it's like, ah, I got to see what's in that particular book and I got to go dig through the pile. But at some point, I think when we move again, I'm going to go back through and say, which of these books am I ever going to look at again? Exactly. That's the litmus. Like, I mean, do you, or, or, I mean, unless something's really special to you, uh, you know, is it a book that you're going to use as kind of a reference and, or right. if you're, you're going to reread it and if not, uh, I think it's better to have it out there in the world. I totally agree. Uh, okay. So I want to get, let's see, Chicago, you go to university of Illinois and then from there you go back to Chicago and then you go, that's to, right. And then you go to McNeese. Correct. And then it's to Clemson. Uh, no, there was a, there was an interim. So then, then, uh, after, after college or after graduate school, four years in Chicago, okay. I'm working in marketing research, um, my uh, wife, who was not my wife at the time, but she um, she was finishing veterinary school oh, okay. um, down at the University of Illinois. So we'd actually met in college, but we both had more growing up and schooling to do. Um, but we managed to get married <laughs> while after she finished school and she was working in Chicago. Um, but then she wanted to go back and become a specialist veterinarian. So she had to go do a uh, internship year, which was back at Illinois. And then she did a three-year residency at Virginia Tech. So that's kind of what brought us to the South. Oh, okay. So wait, now what, what kind of specialist, uh, what kind of specialization in veterinary? She does small animal internal medicine. So dogs and cats, uh, she doesn't do any surgery. It's basically like when a regular, your regular vet, um, gets in over their head or needs a special procedure, like, a ultrasound or endoscopy or something like that. They send it to the kind of clinic my wife works at. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So you were living in Blacksburg. Is that where Virginia? That's right. Yeah. Blacksburg, Virginia. That's an interesting part of the country too. It's beautiful. I mean, it really is sort of an amazingly, amazingly beautiful spot. Um, you know, it's nestled right there in the Blue Ridge. The campus is gorgeous. Um, you get seasons um, in a way you don't really... Uh, in South Carolina, particularly where we are now, um, so it was nice. And it was a really, it was a really great place to to spend three years. Ultimately, it wasn't any place that you know there were opportunities for both of us to to work or or stay. But uh, definitely enjoyed the time there. Okay, and so then, how did you get into uh, McSweeney's? Like, how did they? Because you run the the Internet Tendency, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I well. Uh, I now call myself editor-at-large because uh, I, I started doing that in, like, 2003. I started sort of running the website, and I was doing it by myself um, uh, with a couple of sort of volunteer assistants here and there. And then um, it was 2008, I guess, maybe 2000, I don't know, somewhere 2007, 2008, um, I really wanted to finish a novel, um, which ultimately turned out to be The Funny Man. But I just needed more time, so I found a, a replacement, uh, Chris Monks, um, who he he really does the vast majority of the work. Um, he reads all the main page submissions. He does all the webmastering and that kind of stuff. Um, but I still keep my hand in. I edit the columns and run the new column contest and, and sort of consult. So sometimes I say I'm the managing editor where I want to feel important, but uh, my technical... Uh, title as editor at large. Um, so that that association started. I started by uh, submitting my stuff to the website and then to the journal. So I had a couple of stories published in the journal, and 
uh, in the quarterly and like like the humor humor pieces, or are you talking like short no, stories? Uh, short stories, yeah, sort of in the in the early days, um, you know, like issues three and four and seven and that kind of thing. Um, but the the way I sort of hooked up with McSweeney's and and Dave Eggers was my wife went to high school with him. Ah, okay. Uh, and they were pretty close friends from from high school. Um, and actually, all three of us went to Illinois at the exact same time, um, though I never met him there, which is sort of odd given that I was dating my wife and um, she was friends with him and she knew we were both interested in similar things. But, uh, you know, some years after we, we, he and I met at a wedding of a mutual friend um, of my wife's and his. And uh, this was before he had published a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And um, he just, he asked me to read the manuscript uh, uh, just, you know, to get some eyeballs on it. What do you think? And, and I, I remember reading it. I was going away on a business trip from Chicago to LA um, for uh, this marketing research company, and I read just about all of it on a plane. And I remember thinking, like, oh my God, this I think this is going to be huge. I think people are really going to respond to this book because huh. it's kind of describing the world, you know, the way I would have would have thought of the world um, when I was that age too. Now he and I are the exact same age and grew up in in very similar suburbs of Chicago, but uh, you know, clearly the book resonated with many, many, many people. Well, no, I, mean, I, I think about that book and I remember it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's such a, a rare thing because I have a terrible memory. So it's rare for me to remember where I was when I saw anything. I remember seeing that book on the shelf. I was living in Boulder at the time in Colorado, which is where I went to school. And uh, I remember walking around the bookstore like I would do. And I remember seeing the book and I see, seeing its cover and just picking it up for some reason and buying it. I have no, uh-huh. I have no idea why. And then like reading it's, it. As though by magic yeah. or magnetism. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, you know, and to, for me to buy a hardcover, especially at that right. age, you know, it's like just right. completely bizarre. Um, but, you know, and then I, the way that I've, I described it um, at the time, you know, it's one of those books that makes you kind of angry in a playful way because it kind of says everything. You know, you're like, well, <laughs> right. well shit, you know, okay. <laughs> right. Um, so that's done, you know. Uh, so now we right. got to try something else. But, um, you know, it was just one of those. I don't think anybody can really explain a book like that, you know, one that uh, has that kind of ride or catches that kind of wave. I mean, it's just, it's sort of strange how it happens. I don't think, I bet you Dave probably couldn't even explain it. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure he can't. Um, I'm sure he couldn't, couldn't at the time. And I think it would be even harder, you know, with, with time and, and distance from it. Um, you know, cause I think he even says this in the front that it's, it's a book written by an almost 30 year old, um, a, by an almost 30 year old, uh, about the time in its early twenties. And so it's even already a little bit removed from him. It's, it's like looking back and wondering who was that person. Um, I just, I just remember thinking that he really had in some way articulated the particular, I don't know, problems or angst of, you know, the, the 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 generation I grew up in, Generation X, I guess, but but sort of the feelings I had about the world, which was like, why are we so fucked? Um, it's your way to get unfucked. Uh, that question still seems to be <laughs> applicable. You know, it hasn't. Yeah, no, and, and, and some, some things haven't really changed. I, I think, you know, I think the difference is because teaching college, I, I I see the quote unquote younger generation all the time. They're a little bit more outwardly hopeful, or at least they have been. 
um, maybe up until the latest economic downturn, and now they're just sort of scared witless. Um, but it's, he he just kind of dove in and and wrote about what he was feeling, and it turns out a lot of other people were feeling that way. And 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 I even went so far so. Uh, I applied for the real world the same year he did. He writes about it in the book. Unbeknownst and, to him, I mean, this was no idea. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, no idea. So when I was reading the book, and he gets to his real world application, and he talks about his reasons, which is is you know a little different than mine. I wanted to escape my crummy paralegal job because I didn't know what else to do. I knew I didn't want to go to law school, and this was before I decided to go to graduate school for creative writing. I just knew I had to get out. Um, and the real world seemed like as good a way as any, which is ridiculous in hindsight. But I took that very, very seriously. I didn't get quite as far as he did in the process, but but uh, I remember wanting it pretty badly at the time. Wow, that show! I mean, even it's just right down to the title. You know, there are certain there are certain titles that get to me. Uh, like, and I'll tell you, this is it's sort of related to this program. But like, the reason I think, or part of the reason why I named this podcast "Other People" is because. For as long as I can remember, People magazine has always made me laugh. Just <laughs> people, you know, like, right? And so I was like, and plus, like the kind of people that they're showcasing, I was like, yeah, I, I want to make a show called Other People. You right? Know? What's that magazine about? Oh, it's people. <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. And, and what it's, kind of people? Well, famous people, yeah, uh, and then people who've done really weird things. Yeah, people who are, uh, you know, or like some, you know, occasional, like the, the heartbreaking special interest story always finds its right. way into like the back pages, but right. Like the guy who's, uh, you know, was in a car accident and his dog dragged him out to the curb and that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. There's, exactly. There's those in it. But, yeah, those those are not people like I'm people. That thing, those things don't have it in me. Exactly. Well, that's why we're, I think, you know, that's why I'm featuring, <laughs> I'm featuring folks like you, John. Because All right. Well, we, we, we other people appreciate it. <laughs> so, okay. So now you read the manuscript. Uh, and then what, how did you respond? You know, because I remember, I did, you know, it's I, funny. I, and I, I should say, because I believe I remember on the hardcover jacket, one of the blurbs was from David Foster Wallace, who it was basically just a, a lifted from the letter that he wrote in response to reading the manuscript on a plane. <laughs> right. Is that correct? Uh, that sounds right to me. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, uh, I, well, as I was going, I, I sort of, I had just all these marginal notes and this kind of stuff. And it was pretty close to when he was turning it into the publisher. In fact, as I remember, he was probably overdue because he he just wants to work the thing as much as possible um and and i had you know i had a bunch of notes and i even think i had some sort of grand scheme for like reorganizing it some way that he totally and wisely ignored um but a lot of it was just like oh i'm i like this and i'm into this and uh you know i i got to la and he he uh you know he'd asked me to call him as soon as i read it so i called him i think it's really great um, I, I FedExed it back to him from LA. Um, I think he was in New York. He's living in New York still at the time. Um, cause he wanted to see it and, and take those notes. So it was really, I mean, I was sort of guileless. Like you don't know that this is going to be a really big book or that he's going to become a prominent writer. Um, it was just this guy I knew who I liked, um, who was into a lot of the same things I was into and I was just doing kind of what I would have done for any of my friends who sent me something they've written and said, what do you think? I just said, here's what I think. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest, uh, he actually, the rest is history. I, the rest is history. I, he does. He's nice. He thanks me in the acknowledgments, but I don't think there's any, any particular, uh, 
any of my fingerprints are on that book in any any way, shape, or form. Do you wish you had that manuscript back? I mean, do you, you could eBay you could eBay <laughs> that, that, that thing, uh, right? I hadn't thought about that. That'd be my like retirement plan. Yeah, right. uh, I, I do. I do have a couple of extra copies of the original, like the first editions of the McSweeney's Quarterly. But I always wonder how much is this thing actually worth now? Could I? Is it worth getting rid of at this point? But uh, I'm, I'm now hang I on to it. Hang on to it. You never know. Right. No, it's true. Collectors. So, uh, so when you're running McSweeney's, uh, you know, do you have like any kind of like tech background? Do you have a knack for that kind of stuff, or is it fairly simple? Like what you're doing? Oh, zero. No. Uh, there was. There's always been a webmaster. So I I did all the editorial stuff, and up until about. I'm going to say it's about eight or ten months ago. The site was entirely hand coded in HTML, um, like super old school, and uh, then uploaded through this horrible, horrible interface. And I wanted nothing to do with that. Thankfully, uh, McSweeney's hired a, a digital person, this guy named Russell Quinn, who developed the iPad app um, and all kinds of other awesome things. And he he redesigned the the behind the scenes part of the website. So now it's like a, it's not WordPress, but it's like WordPress. Uh-huh. Um, so I didn't do any of the tech stuff. I would do all the editing. I would ship it off to somebody, um, you know, by email who would be responsible for that kind of thing, because that's just like, that's not something I could ever possibly be, be competent at. Well, I mean, and you know, with regard to McSweeney's, cause it has so many different moving parts at this point. Uh, you know, it's 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 a kind of a mystery. Like, how does it all work? Like, how does does Dave? I mean, does he oversee all of it, or it seems like he must have to be hands off to a degree? I mean, he, there's no way he can do all the things that that he does. You know, at, yeah. At uh, he, he's he yes he he oversees all of it, but it's it's you know, and I I have to be honest in terms of his involvement in the print stuff, I really don't know. I think he's probably more hands on there than he is with the website because the website has kind of just been up and running and going well for so many years that he feels less, probably less necessity to, to put his hand in. Although occasionally, you know, we'll get an email from him where he has a thought or, or thinks something could be done better or different. Um, so it's, he's, he's not absentee in, in any sense of the word. Um, but it's mostly, you know, his, I, th- I think he does it right. He, as a, as a manager, he tries to find people who he trusts, um, works with them until everybody's kind of in sync with, with what the vision is. And then you just wind them up and let them go. And that's, that's really how, how I started working on the website. Um, he, I guess he just called me out of the blue one day. Um, I was working at Virginia Tech. I was teaching, and and uh, whoever was doing the website at the time was leaving. And uh, he just said, "Hey, can you?" I think it was something like, "Can you help me out with this?" And I was thinking he was he was talking like a couple of weeks or months. You know, it's turned into a decade, nine, <laughs> nine years. Um, but he, he's like, and really, you know, what was fun and interesting. He he basically said, "So, what would you do with it?" You know, if you if you could, and at the time it was not updating daily. Um, it was a little bit random in what it would publish. It published a lot of humor, but it published a lot of other things too, kind of you know miscellany and that kind of thing. And I said, you know what, I, I think we should make it the main page into a daily uh, humor site. We'll just there isn't a lot of that other stuff out there. Um, there's an audience for it. It's always the most popular stuff that's on the site. Let's just do that. 
Um, and the other thing I wanted to do was start publishing more stuff to have these these ongoing columns um, like lists and open letters. And I remember dreaming, trying to dream up some of them uh, at the time because we needed more stuff. So I started reviews of new food, which is still ongoing. We still get occasional reviews of new food. And I wrote the very first one myself about plums, as though plums were new. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was very critical of plums because the, the size of the pit is just way too large in plums. The fruit-to-pit ratio is poor, so it's critical. Um, and so we, he, he's just like, yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Um, so he gave me a lot of freedom to experiment and see what works. And then uh, uh, a friend of mine wrote this really funny Sestina that, um, you know, we didn't publish poetry, but I'm like, I really want to publish this. So what are we going to do? I'm like, okay, we don't publish poetry, but we publish Sestinas. So we started taking in Sestinas and we ended up publishing a couple hundred Sestinas over the next few years. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's, it goes from there. Another, we have this category called short imagined monologues. And the very first one was written by Steve Martin. Uh, his agent sent this thing in and it was a really short, little piece. It wasn't long enough for the main page, but I said, I think it's pretty funny. Let's, let's start a new category, short imagined monologues. And now we've got the same thing. We've got a couple of hundred of those things. Um, and even some of the most popular, uh, uh, popular pieces of all time have been in that category. There's one, um, that's got a couple million hits at this point called I'm comic sans asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's the only piece on the entire website that's not in the default font because it has to be in Comic Sans. Um, but it's just like some guy who's decided, I'm going to write in the voice of Comic Sans. Um, it, is, so it, I get a real, it is the most like disparaged font out there. I think. Right. Uh, it's t- I mean, it's awful, but apparently Comic Sans is cocky about what Comic Sans has to offer. <laughs> uh, so it's been, I mean, that was sort of the fun part is his, I think Dave's, Dave's ethos is kind of, um, have fun, experiment, keep it alive for yourself. And that's, that's what's kept me involved, even though, you know, it's time consuming and it takes away from maybe some other things I'd also like to do. It's really great to have the freedom to, to have this little playground sure. that you get to be creative in. Well, it's like a laboratory. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even with the columns that I oversee now, we do this contest every year and we get, I think this year we got about 1200 entries. Um, we choose five winners and to be able to get a snapshot of what 1200 different writers are concerned about and writing about to the best of their abilities and, and getting to pick five to feature on the site. is just really, really, and that's sort of the most fun part for me um, is sort of identifying these, these pieces and, and sharing them with the audience that I think are good. Now, it's not like the audience always agrees with me that these are good, but that's sort of the risk of, of as you well know, the risk of, of being an editor. Sure. Uh, well, so I want to I wanna ask you about The Funny Man, which is about a comic, uh, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's, a, it's got about a comic who uh, becomes famous for doing this act where he sticks his fist into his mouth, his entire fist into his mouth up to the wrist. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and and uh, and he does impressions while he has his hand in his mouth, okay. his wrist. Okay. So first, I mean, this begs the question, uh, John: Can you fit your fist <laughs> into your mouth? <laughs> I cannot. Okay. Uh, although you're, you're, on, you're on the record with that. Since since uh, the book's been out, several people have sent me you know pictures of other people 
with their fists in their mouth. So this is a thing that some people can quite apparently do. But you didn't um, know anybody. I mean, there's not anybody in your life who was the inspiration. No, no, I didn't. I didn't, although I should have because um, actually one of the guys who started this whole modern humorous website that I, I wrote for, he um, he's working on a screenplay about this guy named Doug Kenny, who's one of the original writers for National Lampoon, and he wrote... Um, he wrote Animal House, and he uh, he he died under mysterious circumstances. And uh, uh, as a you know, when he was quite young, they're not sure if it was suicide or an accident. And there's a really famous picture of him with his hand all the way inside of his mouth. <laughs> and uh, one of the original editors, uh, founders of Modern Humorist, sent me this picture um, of Doug Kenny with his his fist in his mouth. And I realized at the moment that I'd obviously seen it before. Uh, and so that that could have been the inspiration. Some part of my subconscious latched latched onto that. So it wasn't rooted in some weird fantasy or anything. No, nothing like that. <laughs> and, and in the book, it's really the 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 funny man, the main character, is watching his. Uh, I mean, you could appreciate this watching his infant try to shove both its his hands and his feet in his mouth because kids will will do that. It's like those are the only things they have around to shove in their mouth that's what they'll try and it cracks him up he's like oh look at that's funny shoving a hand in his mouth so while he's watching his child do that he does it himself well and i should say you know like you read the premise of the book you know of this novel and at first you're like that's completely absurd you know that somebody could get famous for doing that and then you start to actually think about our culture and you start to think about uh somebody doing that and it it's not that that implausible. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think so. I mean, there's been a couple of reviews or comments here and there where people don't buy it. But um, I mean, Gallagher as a comedian is famous for smashing fruit with a sledgehammer. Um, Kim Kardashian, who could be one of the most famous people in the world now, if you really think about it, and has been. I just read this this morning. Has been over the last week the second most written about, commented on person in America over the last week behind Herman Cain uh, is famous for having sex with her boyfriend on videotape. I mean, that's the source of her fame. So uh, it doesn't seem, it, it never, it never struck me that that would be just totally outlandish. I mean, it's this, this, you know, it's obviously silly. It's not like it, um, anyone would believe that this is a huge um, artistic breakthrough, but at the same time, I don't know. It struck me that maybe somebody could get famous on that kind of thing. So now, what about stand-up comedy? I mean, is this something you've tried, or how did you how did you write about that kind of character? Like, what what was your point of entry? I have not tried stand-up comedy because I would be afraid. <laughs> it's very that just strikes me as very very um, ballsy to get up in front of an audience that is kind of daring you to make them laugh. Um, but I've always been into it. I've been interested in it. And even as like a six, seven-year-old kid, I remember memorizing an entire Steve Martin comedy album where I probably didn't even understand uh, two-thirds of the jokes, but I had, had listened to it enough that I, I could recite it. I used to do that memory. too. I used to do that too with like, you know, like George Carlin and Sam Kinison. Right. And I, had all, right. I used to have those albums. You know, I had them on cassette tape, but you know. They're... Yeah. Yeah, we had, uh, it was like the Wild and Crazy Guy album when Steve Martin was at the peak of his fame and he's playing to arenas and 
I just, uh, I don't know if it was my brother, I had an older brother who played it, or if my parents thought it was really funny, um, or even like earlier than that, Cosby, um, Bill Cosby's comedy records, or Bob Newhart. So I've always been into that stuff, and, and I write humor, so I, I like that. But, um, you know, it, it happened, uh, to use a fancy uh, creative writer type word, it happened pretty organically. I just had a notion of a guy up on stage um, you know, doing okay, but not great. And, and this idea that to become famous and rich in America, you need a thing, you need this hook, you need, you need something that breaks you out of the pack. And that, that notion became interesting to me. So it wasn't like I did a lot of on the ground research on stand-up comedians or anything. It was more, I had this, this idea and situation I was curious about and ended up writing my way into into, I don't know if I figured it out so much, but it, it just kept kind of staying interesting to me. Just wanted to keep writing about it. Yeah, I, 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 now I'm imagining it as like a movie. You know, if this if this ever got adapted, like how would, you know, they would have to get a prosthetic, like a smaller fist, I guess. Yeah, I mean, either either like a nationwide search for somebody who can actually <laughs> do it or, or uh, you know, trick photography. And the, uh, I just finished watching uh, Tron Legacy, on Netflix streaming. I don't know if you've seen uh, Tron Legacy. I, I have you not. Should, I have not. You yet. shouldn't. But, but uh, so Jeff Bridges plays both sort of uh, you know current uh, age Jeff Bridges, but he also is is a character um, of of the age he was in the original Tron, and uh, it's sort of the CGI young Jeff Bridges, and it's. It's not yet convincing, like you say, oh, that's a computer-generated head. Um, but I think we could get there. I think by the time an ad- adaptation of, of this book would roll around, they could figure out how to CGI. There's no, there's no doubt. I mean, and you could even put like a prosthetic, just you know, just have the actual hand stuffed down into the sleeve. And then have like a smaller, you know, this could be done. They right. can make, they can make or, Jurassic Park for God's sakes. They can get a fist <laughs> in somebody's mouth. Or, or or always shoot it from the side, like when you're a kid and you would pretend, like for your friends, that you're pulling something out of your mouth. Yeah, from the side, that kind of thing. It's it's a, it's an easy workaround. I'm not worried about that. I can see the movie poster. I mean, you can see <laughs> it, right? Yeah, it'll be like a 40 year old virgin only with a guy with his fist. In yeah, his it'll mouth. be Steve Carell with his fist yeah. in his mouth. Yeah. Is there any, I mean, have you gotten any, any, uh, like, you know, sniffs from Hollywood? Have they looked at it or is it the kind of thing? No, I mean, uh, there's a film agent, but, um, and there's, you know, a couple people who I sort of know that I've foisted the book on, but as of yet, there's no, there's no nibbles or feelers or sniffs or any of those things. I mean, that would be fantastic. I mean, isn't that like every writer's dream is they adapt your book so they end up giving you a big pile of dough that allows you to go write more books. Um, but it's not anything that I think anybody can count on. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And it's like that, you know, I know a lot of writers who, you know, their books have gotten optioned or there's been a flurry of activity around publication and then it just sort of fades. Like nothing ever really happens. That's a very common story. Yeah. I mean, the the Hollywood I think is constantly looking for material, but then the stuff that's going to actually make it into production is, is just a small percentage. And, and even, you know, my old uh, grad school professor, Robert Owen Butler, his, his book, uh, sent from a strange mountain was optioned by Ang Lee. You know, this is back in the mid nineties. Um, 
even went partially into production. I remember they were scouting locations and it was going to be like, this is going to be his Ang Lee's next project. I'm like, Holy crap, Bob's, you know, and he was, he was writing the screenplay. Like he's, he's going to leave us cause he's going to win an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, who are we going to get then? I mean, I, I remember having those conversations and the, the movie's never seen the light of day. Yeah, I mean, and then I, Ang Lee made Brokeback Mountain. He went in a different yeah. direction, you know? Yeah. It was going to be, uh, he really he was going to make it like Joy Luck Club because it's a series of, of sort of interwoven short stories and and I think it was very it's like anything they're very enthusiastic about it and then some other shinier object comes along and all of a sudden that's what gets the attention so you know I I, I think it's great when those kinds of things happen for writers I'd love to have for it to happen to me but any writer who spends their time kind of worrying about that is is in for disappointment i think yeah it's kind of a yeah, fool's errand but uh you know well before i let you go what are you working on now you have anything in the in the offing i uh yeah i've got a couple projects almost done um i've got a, a another adult novel it's a baseball book which i understand is always a dicey proposition but i enjoy it well wait the art of the art of fielding isn't that a baseball book yeah that's a baseball book although this this is as is my my way um that's sort of a sincere heartfelt baseball book and mine is goofy mine is about a a major league pitcher who can stick a bat in his mouth (laughs) (laughs) you can stick a baseball in his Uh, mouth shit now i've got to go rewrite the whole thing um it's a, it's about a major league pitcher who um, uh, his entire career the only thing he's been able to do is is uh, get out Barry Bonds or a Barry Bonds stand-in. Um, so he's been sort of Barry Bonds' nemesis, although in the book he's called Larry Johns, uh, and he is trying to. Uh, uh, it's sort of the end of their careers, and he's trying to prevent Larry Johns from breaking the all-time home run record. And over the years, their lives have been very intertwined. It's sort of a. a a domestic comedy slash baseball book, um, and then I've I've got a uh, I've got a young adult novel that I'm trying to finish. Also, that's about uh, it's called Bigfoot Girl, uh, a girl who is the product of a the mating between a yeti and a human. <laughs> Fantastic. Now she's ha- she's having she's having trouble in middle school because she's six foot six yeah. and covered covered in a light fur. Um, <laughs> and, that, uh, that, that tends to stand out in uh, in seventh grade. Well, excellent. Well, uh, I'll tell you a quick Barry Bonds story before I let you go. I, I was sure. uh, this is the most random Barry Bonds sighting ever. I was in uh, Colorado over the summer. My wife and I uh, took our daughter on like a little uh, vacation, and we were in Aspen, and we went down to Woody Creek and went to the Woody Creek Tavern for lunch, which was like Hunter S. Thompson's old. Right, uh, stomping grounds, and so we were, we were actually on our way out of town, and we stopped off for lunch. And uh, Barry Bonds was having lunch at the Woody Creek Tavern. I was like, "This You're is the most no." I was like, this is- "That is that is complete." Is he like a Hunter S. Thompson fan uh, too? Is no, he, like- he was like in bicycling gear. I think he was like <laughs> staying in Aspen and like went biking and like biked down to the ta- people do that. You bike along the river down to right, the Woody Creek right. for lunch or whatever. But I was like, maybe the last person I expected to see at the Woody Creek Tavern was Barry Bonds. But there you go. Yeah, that would be like seeing like Bigfoot in the Woody Creek Tavern. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bigfoot girl. Right. Uh, well, John, it's been a pleasure, man, and I wish you uh, all the best with the funny man and with the new projects and with McSweeney's uh, internet tendency. Hey, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun for me. All right. Take it easy. Thanks.
All right, everybody, there you have it. That's the program. That is John Warner for the hour. Please be sure to go check out McSweeney's.net, and you can find John on Facebook as well, I believe. This show can be found on the web at otherpeoplepod.com. You can find it on Twitter, uh, at otherpeoplepod. It's got a Facebook presence. I'm on Twitter as well, at Brad Listy. And if you want to email me, the email address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, don't forget to check out the Nervous Breakdown, too. That's the nervousbreakdown.com. Follow it at TNB Tweets on Twitter. And uh, I should mention that we just announced the Nobbies this past week. The Nobbies are the uh, TNB Book Awards selected annually, our picks for the best book of the year. So go over to uh, the nervousbreakdown.com and check that out. I should thank Kill Rockstars before I forget. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Please be sure to check them out at killrockstars.com. And please, folks, if you enjoy this prob- uh, this program, pl- uh, pretty please, it's a lot of peas, take a couple minutes out of your life and go to iTunes and find the show in the iTunes store in the podcast section and give it a rating. Give it a nice rating. And uh, if you're feeling extra generous, write a quick review. That really helps, and uh, I would certainly appreciate it. So other than that, final thoughts. What do I want to, uh, what do I want to say? What do I want to share with you? What would I say if we only had 30 seconds to live? If a meteor was uh, blazing towards the earth and impact was imminent and the sky was turning orange and everybody was freaking out. Uh, you know, what would I say? I like to think I'd say something good. I like to think that I would live up to the moment and uh, come up with something clever, some sort of uh, pun involving the word meteor. Something like, uh, get ready to meteor maker. Get it? Uh, okay, that's it. That's all I got. It's late. A little word humor. My brain is melting down. I'll be back soon. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show if you haven't subscribed yet over at iTunes or at Stitcher. A lot of good stuff coming up. A lot of good episodes. I'm going to keep going straight through the holidays. So if uh, you know, you're traveling, you can listen while you're traveling. Or if you're stuck in transit or... You know, if the holidays come and you find yourself caught under the weight of a merciless existential quagmire, uh, other people will be here for you, and uh, you can listen to me on your goddamn thing. Okay? You understand? Do not lose your goddamn thing.